Why does history matter? What's the point in keeping track of everything that's happened before? How does history influence the present and future? The network state by Balaji Srinivasan makes the case that history is crucial for several reasons. In part one of this episode, we covered how history is how you win the argument. Winning arguments need more than pure logic alone. You need facts, so you need history. How history determines legality. How history determines morality. How history is how you develop compelling media. How history is the true value of cryptocurrency. How history tells you who's in charge. We also explored how new network states should treat or teach their history and whether on-chain records make it impossible to lie. We also dived into what history tells us about how radical truth, honesty, and transparency would work at scale using examples from companies doing it today. Today, in part two of why history is crucial, we cover history determines your hiring policy, Founders need to know history in order to have the moral authority and maneuverability to make the best decisions, how history is how you debug our broken society. And we're just starting out and could really use your support. So if you could like this episode, please uh, lightly and lovingly caress that like button, share this episode, comment, and sign up for our newsletter. I promise we'll make it worth it for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today is History as Trajectory from Chapter 2, Why History Matters, Part 2. And uh, we're also going to be doing our first live Twitter space for this one. So for any of you listening live, welcome. They're uh, basically time travelers. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. We're jumping around in all the different metaverses. Um, Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. We'll start diving into where we left off last time uh which where did is, we leave off last time we left off with uh history determines your hiring policies over here is that controversial is definitely uh, a controversial opinion i'm sure there's going to be lots of different points to say but here we are right how history determines your hiring policy So why are tech companies being lectured by media corporations on diversity? Is it because those media corporations that are 20 to 30 points whiter than tech companies actually deeply care about this? Or is it because after the 2009 era collapse of print media revenue, media corporations struggled for a business model, found that certain words drove traffic, and then doubled down on that, boosting their stock price and bashing their competitors in the process? After all, if you know a bit more history, you'll know that the New York Times company, which originates so many of these gerrymads, gerrymads? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Gerrymads. 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 Okay. Uh, Gerrymads. All right. (laughs) Um, Is an organization where the controlling Ox Sulzberger family literally profited from slavery, blocked women from being publishers, excluded gays from the newsroom for decades, ran a succession process featuring only three cis straight white male cousins, and ended up with a publisher who just happened to be the son of the previous guy. So It it kind of of sets up like a joke, just by the way. (laughs) I I love that. Like, (laughs) 
it's a like, lot so outrageous also that and, name just you know that name is a nice liberal forward-thinking family name <laughs> yeah right <laughs> that name is comically white um and so uh to be clear all of this is said in the network state book and there are many links to the sources of why biology is mentioning all this stuff so go ahead and check that out if you're a listener um and so moving on suppose you're a founder once you know this history and once all your friends and employees and investors know it and once you know that no purportedly brave establishment media corporation would have ever informed you of it in quite those words you're outside the matrix you've mentally freed your organization so long as you aren't running a corporation based on hereditary nepotism where the current guy running the show inherits the company from his father's 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 father you're more diverse and democratic than the owners of the New York Times company. You don't need to take lectures from them, from anyone in their employee, or really from anyone in their social circle, which includes all establishment journalists. Uh, you, know, uh, you now have the moral authority to hire who you need to hire within the confines of the law, as SpaceX, Shopify, Kraken, and others are now doing. And that's how a little knowledge of history restores control over your hiring policy. Okay, so Raph, do you want to start off on this one? Yeah, I mean, it, I actually think it, it is worth going through some of those um, sources, but I, I don't want to really open a rabbit hole except for that. What he's setting up here is just saying, um, I, I, I think when he means history determines your hiring policy, it, this section does feel like it's more about uh, history and media, I guess, determines what's going on. Because basically, it's if you look at the history of media, then you understand that, okay, look, the stories that are being told might not necessarily be the ones that you should be listening to, um, or vice versa. If you're listening to certain stories, make sure that, um, you know, that they're not putting you in a space where you're, I, I mean, from a positive point of view, I guess, where you're putting limitations on what you would want to do or what you think needs to happen, needs to be done. So I think that's the, for me, that's like the positive takeaway. I think it's, it, it can be quite aggressive. I think um, bashing on the New York Times or other print journalism, like you, I, I don't know. I remember learning that in, in even in high school in the US um, in the nice, uh, nice little uh, small town school that I went to, we, we still paid attention to um, like jingoism and the forces of journalism sort of pushing countries to war. <laughs> Um, and how media coverage even 100 years ago wasn't exactly like <laughs> uh, the best. And it, it only were moments, it was actually only moments that revealed um, major crises. Uh, I think Watergate scandal, if you think about it, um, you know, that was still outed by the media, which is kind of cool. But, you know, what weren't they picking up? Um, muck raking uh, much earlier than that, I think at least 50 years earlier than that, maybe even in the previous century where they were sort of they were they went to tackle cronyism or um i guess just like the disgusting work practices that were happening in industrial america those were good forms of journalism and and, the, and i'm sure the journalists there actually believed in some kind of moral grounding um i'm not sure who owned them i'm sure at the time it was still the same owners so yeah i think it, it sort of cycles um and uh at, basically, for me, the barrier is let's not let what other people say or think stop you from doing the right thing. 
and and I think that's the that's the real point for me that, that that's for ideally I hope that's the point that they're trying to make <laughs> absolutely yeah and you know like as we've seen um in the U.S. with the polarization of the parties you know the diversity of thought the ability to um have diversity of thought is so crucially important um and just being able to express whatever you think even if it's contradict contradictory to the masses um and especially contradictory to the press or to what the government is saying uh is extremely important right and so um you know i think like this is a general point um about how journalism has changed in the uh inception of social media and how controversy drives revenue as opposed to truth drives revenue um mm -hmm. and you know it's it's unfortunate but until we find a different um system or a model where truth is valued and that's the more profitable uh route um or at least the the, the routes that um media companies want to take um then we're gonna have to deal with this problem right and more so um because all of these social media companies are creating these echo chambers where um you have to try very hard to hear something that is uh, opposing your existing viewpoint um and that makes well, it that makes it a really hard it makes it really hard to to form a, a, a functioning society functioning peaceful society right well i i mean i think it's it's funny because uh we're we're talking about i mean first of all, we're recording this on um twitter which is hilarious but um yeah well actually and, we but, should bring that up right because i mean this is such a yeah. this is such a pressing part of the conversation yeah but i think even before that um you would have thought that the pressure that social media has brought by by like offering different points of view which are basically your point of view but like extreme points of view are now at the forefront would have driven uh more traditional um how do you say more traditional um media outlets to actually double down on the truth because look now there actually is a need for it but it basically it hasn't been that way and i think print media is an interesting one but really it, it should have just i mean what i hear more is that cable news is has kind of like exploded what journalism was supposed to be because suddenly you have to generate news 24 hours a day right which i guess is the similar to um to social media and so i mean they're both driving for content not quality at that point so as soon as you're taking the finger off of quality truth goes down accountability goes down you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and then i think the other point which i'm just going to drop now because um it in and of itself is kind of interesting um but not necessarily strictly relevant which is just that he hasn't mentioned amazon he hasn't really mentioned amazon in 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 the beginning of this i don't know if he mentions this uh, before it's a it's a pretty big book in a way um but uh talk about uh a big company like a uh, tech company whose owner literally owns a media company um i mean you, i guess you could make the equivalent uh so so jeff bezos owns the washington post right yeah. um and and he owns and, and he also owns amazon so that i mean who is who's attacking who you know there he's he's come under fire for 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 basically manipulating those kinds of headlines um in in a company that desperately needs oversight um because it is that size so i think i think you know i don't think we should be saying like oh look you know tech companies are doing great you know <laughs> 
either. There, there definitely needs to be another kind of watchdog just because uh, um, just because media is not doing great um, doesn't mean that uh, tech is the good guy. But I think it kind of makes sense that the move for Elon Musk, if we want to bring it down to the Twitter conversation, is that, look, here's a guy with different tech companies. And well, instead of going the traditional media route, he chooses to own Twitter, um, which actually, in a way, I think is just the same move, but um, with a different business model. Or I, maybe it has the same business model. I don't know what the business model is anymore for print um, media. It, it sounds like it's still advertisement and content creation, uh, curation even, but um, but in a different platform or much more, um, I guess, open-ended. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, th this can go into so many different um, rabbit holes. So to try to keep it within how media informs hiring policy or I guess like just freedom of speech and freedom of expression um, if you're a founder. So just to like bring it all back, right? The reason that founders need to know history um, in order to have the moral authority and maneuverability to make the best decisions, um, not because they're pressured by the public or a woke mob, uh, but because they've thought deeply about what would be best and are right about it, right? Um, so these kinds of um, decisions can go either way, right? So I've seen many instances where companies have listened uh, and it's gone really well. And I've seen many instances of companies where they have not listened and it's gone very poorly. Um, and so it really comes down to what do the founders truly believe in themselves? Do they know their audience well enough to uh, stick with their values and uh, ignore the pressures that have nothing to do with what they really want to get done uh, when that's the hardest? Right. So if you're getting canceled by um, the New York Times or by any media outlet, um, that's where these decisions really matter, because you're either going to uh, break and succumb to whatever they're trying to make you do, or you're going to double down on the values that you have for the network state that you've created or the startup society that you've created or the company that you've created. It doesn't matter. Um, because you know that your following believes in those values more so than they believe in the values that these media companies are trying to push onto you. Um, so yeah, I think yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, the, I guess the argument there is what is the difference between what those media companies are espousing versus what your organization is pushing. And, uh, and I guess underlying that is where do you draw the moral or ethical code? Um, I assume, I mean, I think that's what we're mostly talking about here. Because um, I think maybe a hiring policy is a veiled uh, <laughs> term to reveal sort of like uh, touch on the point where it's like, you know, you're making choices about power dynamics. You're making choices about who wins, who doesn't, um, who gets the job, who doesn't. Which groups are you then enriching or pushing forward um, in that kind of because you have that opportunity and and it that should be weighted according to some kind of moral scale which um, I mean firstly is accountable 
like that it should it should have a like legitimate recourse to justice i guess um i don't know if media is rarely <laughs> the place where you're going to get treated justly um i think that's true for both sides both whether you're liberal or conservative if we want to bring in the political conversation yeah um and so I, I mean i guess on some level you could ignore media obviously media is out there because on top of being profit motivated all these organizations are they are also um literally a branch which is amplifying think thinking into speech so um yeah i guess there you have to be careful because if the speech is not aligned with certain moral codes then yeah you're you're gonna have worse than discourse you're gonna have discord or whatever <laughs> <laughs> nice so yeah i mean how to wrap this up for founders and and the decision making behind this uh i think it would be good to look at some examples right so i think elon is actually a great example of this because it happened for both twitter and tesla uh, and probably spacex where um during covid there was a lot of controversy with tesla and how many people they fired and the kind of policies they put in place and you had to come into the office to do xyz and these kinds of things and a lot of people got fired uh, and a lot of people left because of that. Um, and so, but at the same time, a lot of people stayed, right? So it, it really comes down to um, uh, this one piece uh, of the definition of a network state, which is having this collective action. And in order to maintain that collective action, which is what makes a startup society so much more powerful than just an average startup, uh, you need to have everybody's values aligned. Um, and everybody's actions need to be uh, compounded by the fact that everybody is aligned. So if uh, there is dissent or if there is mutiny or if there is constant um, debate, which is healthy, I think, to come to the best answer, um, but after you've come to the, to the correct answer or the answer that everybody agrees on, everybody has to commit and move forward with that. If after it's been uh, the decision has been made that continues to happen it's going to slow down the progress of that startup society um, and it's going to make it possible for people who are not aligned to remain in the company and that's when these kinds of splits can happen right same kind of thing happened with bitcoin in the early days um, and these ideological differences if they become great enough cause a split um, and again, this is not this is not a bad thing um, for the world at large. Uh, but if you are the founder, it's bad for what you're trying to do because you just lost a ton of people who could have been helping your mission, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the balance to strike. Um, and with Twitter, you know, we saw the same thing happen. A bunch of people got fired and then asked to come back and then fired and then asked to come back. <laughs> like a lot of different uh, back and yeah. forth there. Um, so I think yeah. it also matters to be careful uh, when making these decisions, be thoughtful about it, really think, yeah. deeply, you know, speed is definitely an advantage for startups, no doubt about it. Um, but alienating your own audience or employees or members of your network state, just because you're trying to do it quickly uh, is not a good idea. That's not worth it. Yeah. And, and I think the, I think I would close this subject on that because I think actually it's a good transition into the next point, but um you I for me it's like when I when I work with different startups or with um, different projects 
and the objective is uh, you know reach a grow your audience, grow your community. Your first audience and your first community are your team, your employees. So if you're not like carrying them along, if you're not building them up the way that you would want to be built, um, then you're not going to get the response from the market that will be true and consistent and a trustworthy like uh, metric of you know how you're actually performing. Um, and so if if your if the culture inside is good, then you should not have to worry about <laughs> being attacked from the outside. Um, that's that's the thing. That's that those are lasting organizations. I agree completely. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever happens within the doors of the company, if people are all aligned there, that's all that matters. Um, if you guys keep trucking towards the mission. Okay, so the next point is history is how you debug our broken society. Many billions of dollars are spent on history in the engineering world. We don't think about it that way, though. We call it doing a post-mortem, looking over the log files, maybe running a so-called time travel debugger to get a reproducible bug. And once we find it, we might want to execute an undo, do a git revert, restore from backup, or return to a previously known good configuration. Think about that. Uh, think about what we're saying on a micro scale, knowing the detailed past of the system allows us to figure out what had gone wrong and being able to partially rewind the past to progress along a different branch via a git revert empowers us to fix that wrongness. This doesn't mean throwing away everything and returning to the caveman era of a blank git repository as per either the caricature traditionalist who wants to turn back the clock or the anarcho-primitivist who wants to end industrialized civilization. But it does mean <laughs> rewinding a bit to then move forward along a different path because progress has both magnitude and direction. All these concepts apply to debugging situations at larger scale than companies like societies or countries. So I think this is like the most interesting point of the entire why history matters um, piece because and you know, just to explain um, for listeners as well, uh, Bology is using a lot of um, coding terms here or uh, engineering terms to um, explain how having different versions of your website or of your company or of um, your progress and being able to go back and then pick up from a version that was better than where you currently are um, is super, super, super important. And we see this all the time uh, in web design uh, as well. But uh, when you apply it to history, it's incredibly important because say you were able to time travel um, and go back to certain events that you yourself took that you regretted or that ended in you know catastrophic results. Um, and you were able to just pick up to a moment before that happened and switch the path based on what you now know, I mean, the implications are enormous, right? Um, and so although that's not possible, at least for now. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, easier said than done. <laughs> right, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the concept and the idea of that remains the same and is still just as valuable, right? So it's the, the idea that um, just because you've gone down a certain path, you know, don't fall into the, uh, sunk cost fallacy where you've just invested so much you can't change anymore. The ability to change your mind and move forward from a time where things were working better um, is extremely valuable for you as an individual, but also as 
uh, a founder or a country um, and to acknowledge, right? Like for all the times that we've seen countries do things that were wrong um, and then deny, 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 uh, and it hindered their progress until, you know, finally they had to, you know, publicly explain, hey, yes, we are taking blame and we are taking responsibility and ownership of the things that we've done wrong. Um, that allows people to get closure and move on. Um, without that, it's just this constant conflict and resentment that will linger um, and hinder progress. Yeah, I I mean, right out of the gate. I, I, basically, I only have two points for this. Um, like you said, it's it's a great way to end. It's I think it's a good, it carries quite nicely on from the previous subject in terms of underlying ideas, principles. For me, there's there's two principles, and it and it comes down to this. The headline's very simple. We are gonna keep making mistakes. <laughs> the the trajectory so, of history, for me, like speaking personally, but based on the tone, the content, the quality of of what he's bringing here, is it's just that we're we make mistakes like over and over over again. That's the truth in it. It's the truth. It's the honest truth of of any story in the hero's journey that we covered, for example. Hero fails in the beginning. He will keep making mistakes. What, what is a good story? One who learns from their mistakes is afforded the forgiveness and goes forward with that knowledge learned. And, and so those are the two points is because we kind of keep making mistakes, we have to learn to be more forgiving. Again, yes, should people who have more power and responsibility be held to a higher standard? Definitely. That's that's just the way that it works. It's true. You're, if you want to take on more things, you're going to have to deal with more. But at the same time, there should be a path where they're offered forgiveness at their level. And that in general, we should just be more cautious. And I think this is the this is the real point for me in this um, in this final section, which is it's hard to revert it's hard to go back so whatever you're going to decide uh, are the parameters for change or progress make sure that they're broad enough that they're not going to end up putting you in a position where you get pigeonholed or it's a dead end because going back from there is going to be really painful even in real life if you take the wrong turn you hate turning back <laughs> you know totally yeah, because you have to admit that you're wrong, right? You have to take ownership and and say like I messed up or what I did was wrong, uh, and yeah, most people don't like doing that. Um, so, so, so it's not just about making it possible technologically, but it's also about making it like more part of the culture, basically. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So to wrap up, um, we got this final passage here, um, which just kind of puts a nice bow on everything. Um, and that is, you now see why history is useful. A founder of a mere startup company can arguably scrape by without it, tacitly outsourcing the study of history to those who shape society's laws and morality. But a president of a startup society cannot, because a new society involves moral, social, and legal innovation relative to the old one. And that requires a knowledge of history. So ultimately, uh, this is the big differentiating factor between a startup and a startup society. If you care enough about the mission and what you're trying to make something truly new, right, and achieve a vision of something that is better than anything that came before, you need to know what came before, how that came to be, what was wrong with it, what it could be improved or how it could be improved. And then you need to know how to implement that successfully in your own version.
Yeah, exactly. I, I would just add that, you know, once you know the history book, you will be able to write a better rule book. And that's it. <laughs> totally. Simple as that. Okay, guys, this was a short one. Uh, thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, comment, share, rate the podcast, uh, sign up for our newsletter <laughs> and, uh, you know, get exclusive perks. We're going to be making some merch um, and you'll get some early access to surprises. Till next time. Love surprises. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening. In the next episode, we'll cover why history is crucial specifically for startup societies and why it matters. We'll talk about how why the president of a startup society needs history while traditional founders can scrape by without it, how a new society involves moral, social, and legal innovation relative to the old one, and why that requires a knowledge of history. History as written to the ledger as opposed to history as written by the winners, the emergence of a new leviathan, the network, uh, what is the idea of the One Commandment, a historically founded socio-political innovation that draws citizens to a startup society just as a technologically-based commercial innovation attracts customers to a startup company? We'll unpack the difference between a startup society and traditional startups. We'll cover why a startup society has to begin with a moral issue instead of a for-profit technological innovation how early America's religious colonies succeeded at a higher rate than its for-profit colonies because the former had a purpose, the kinds of compelling pitches startup societies could use for recruitment, why startup society founders are arguing that the culture of their startup society is better than their surrounding culture, how the Arab Spring shows us the power and potential of startup societies, uh, better metrics we can use to track and judge government's success, and we're just starting out and could really use your support. So please smash that like button, share this episode, comment, and sign up for our newsletter. I promise we'll make it worth it. Mm -hmm.